order, order. Despite the billions of words that have been spoken in the House of Commons, these two are probably the best known. And if a frequency count was ever done, in Hansard, the parliamentary record of all the speeches, these are probably the two most common words that have ever been spoken in the British Parliament. They're spoken, of course, by the Speaker of the House as he shouts constantly, Order! Order! Attempting to bring a semblance of order to the members of the House who compete with one another by speaking against each other, over the top of each other, with shouts, jeers and goodness knows what. I suspect that this is probably one of the reasons, among many, why people today have such a low regard for politicians and the political process, because we can now see exactly what it's like as well, as well as hearing it, as you see the picture on the screen. And these kind of scenes are often more frequently portrayed because they're the contentious speeches, where the house is packed full and people are even standing during proceedings. And to many people, I suspect that these scenes seem very childish. After all, we say, no good parent would tolerate that kind of behaviour in their home. Such a judgment is probably unfair, given all else that Parliament does, let alone the many courteous debates that go unreported, and the many debates where there's just a handful of people, half of whom are fast asleep on the back rows. Nonetheless, it's true, is it not, that the public image of any body or organisation is very important, for it communicates a message about the people who belong to it. And almost 2,000 years ago, the followers of Jesus of Nazareth were creating a negative public image in the Greek city of Corinth. For their church meetings, when they came together, were very disorderly affairs. And reports of what was happening in their meetings finally reached the ears of Paul, the apostle or messenger of Jesus Christ, through whose preaching this church had come into being several years previously. And so in this letter written to him, preserved in our New Testament, in our Bible, which is called 1 Corinthians, it's the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, at least the first one that still survives, he writes to them to address this particular issue of what the NIV, if you've got the New International Version, the Pew Bibles, uh, head up as orderly worship. So let's read first of all what he said, and then we'll try and look at it together. It's 1 Corinthians 14. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews. It will help to have a Bible. We're going to be looking quite closely at the text together and then trying to apply it to ourselves. So it's quite important to have a Bible in front of you. If you don't know your way around the Bible, that's okay as well. I'll give you the page number. It's page 1155. It's on the screen, page 1155. And this is what Paul wrote all these years ago to these Christians in Corinth. What then should we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church, speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should weigh, should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. 
For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it's reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. This is God's word, which we're going to look at together. One writer on 1 Corinthians comments, Paul had good reason for concern about disorderly conduct in meetings of his fledgling group on the margins of suspicious Corinthian society. They were causing waves in the Greek community of which they were a part. And here in these verses, very simply notice, he focuses on three issues that were causing disorder. The first two relate to the gifts of prophecy and tongues. Now again, I don't have time to go through what they were and all the explanation. You need to go back to the previous study when we look more clearly at these things together. So he looks at the interpretation of tongues in verses 27 to 28 and then the evaluation of prophecy in verses 29 to 33. And then he deals with the third issue that he's already touched on in chapter 11 in the first half relating to women and their participation in verses 34 through to 36 and then he summarizes with a conclusion. Now, what I want to do is simply look at these three issues one by one but we need to see how they relate to what is Paul's main concern. The guiding principle he summarizes is this, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Stay with me on this part, we need to get the background way back then and then we're going to do the really hard bit which is, how does that relate to us in the 21st century rather than just the 1st century? And that's where the controversy comes. And uh, we may disagree in love, but let's see how far we can get with God's help and looking at what's written here. So let's look, first of all, then, more closely at the situation in 1st century Corinth and these three issues that were causing problems. The first one is the interpretation of tongues, speaking in unknown languages. We looked last time at whether these were real languages or kind of, some kind of heavenly speech. Whatever the case, the Christians in Corinth had elevated this particular gift, speaking in tongues, to the top of their spiritual wish list of desirable spiritual gifts. So much so that it appears from verse 23 that when the whole church came together, everyone was speaking in tongues all at the same time. Now, you just think if that happened here in Charlotte Chapel. Even if we all spoke at the same time in English, Scottish, whatever. <laughs> it would be bedlam, wouldn't it? Now, Paul does not ban it. He doesn't say, no, you should stop speaking in tongues altogether. Though he says prophecy is a far more desirable gift, speaking God's word in a known language. Now, what he says in verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, then what happens should be clearly regulated. He says two or three two or at most three people should speak. 
And rather than speaking at the same time, they should speak one after the other. One person stands up and speaks, then another one, and maybe he says, a third one. And someone must interpret this unknown tongue and explain it in understandable language, in Greek in their day, or in English in ours, or whatever language or community you come from. Uh, early on, we saw in verse 13, early in this passage, that Paul says the person who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. It's possible to interpret what you're saying yourself. Here he seems to indicate that there will be someone else in the congregation who has the gift of interpretation, who understands when this person stands up and begins to speak in this strange tongue, that someone else will stand up immediately afterwards and speak out and say, this is what God is saying, this is what this means. Those of you, like myself, who have been in meetings like this, will know that sometimes this happens and people stand up and speak. What he's saying, though, is... If there is no one present who can interpret, maybe the speaker knows someone who has this gift, but if there is no one present, then the speaker in tongues should keep quiet in the church and just speak to himself and to God. Verse 27, quietly and privately. Or he should keep quiet. Now, there's an important principle behind this which people get confused about. Let me give you a quote from another writer, Leon Morris. That's what he says. We are not to think of tongues as the result of an irresistible impulse of the Spirit, driving the man willy-nilly into ecstatic speech. He could keep quiet. And that, says Paul, he must do unless there is an interpreter. And this is a crucial element, for as we saw in our last study, uninterpreted tongues are of no benefit to those present. If I stood up, well, last time you heard my wife stand up and speak in an unknown language that none of you knew and only a handful of people in Nigeria speak, not one of you had any benefit from it because you didn't know what she was talking about. She could have been reading the shopping list or she could have been telling you there's a fire in the building you need to get out or it could have been Mary had a little lamb in the Azeri language of Nigeria. You didn't know. It was of no benefit to you as a Christian. It had no edification. It wasn't going to help you as a Christian. Moreover, Paul says, if there are unbelievers present, people who are not yet Christians, if they hear it, it will have a negative effect because they'll think these Christians are crazy. They're out of their minds. So Paul says, if this happens, it should be done in an orderly way, one or two people at a time, with interpretation, or you should keep quiet. He then turns to what he calls a greater gift, which is prophecy, and speaks about the evaluation of prophecy. Um, Michael Green defines prophecy as, we looked at this last time, another writer, Michael Green, says, Prophecy is a word from the Lord through a member of the body, inspired by his spirit and given to build up the rest of the church, the body. Unlike tongues, where Paul says if anyone speaks in a tongue, prophecy is a gift that anyone can seek and use. Verse 31 he says, you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. However, as with those who speak in tongues, those who prophesy should be should do so in an orderly manner. And he gives instructions for use. Again, he says, two or three should prophesy. Now, this time, he's not saying, if you look closely, that two or three is the maximum. He's saying two or three, then after they've spoken, the rest of the people should evaluate or weigh up what has been said. Weigh carefully, verse 29. Two or three prophets prophesy, in turn, weighed by the others. Now, it's been suggested that who would do the weighing up? Who would say, yeah, that's a word from the Lord, that's helpful. Or, no, that's not a word from the Lord, that's not very helpful. It's been suggested that maybe it was other prophets who had the gift of weighing it up. 
or the gift of the ability to distinguish between spirits, which we looked at in chapter 12, verse 10, where a similar word is used. However, it seems more likely here that the rest of the congregation are to evaluate what has been said. It's very significant as you read 1 Corinthians, there is no reference to leadership in the church. In other letters of Paul, he talks about elders, overseers, and deacons. Here there is no mention of that. It seems to me that he's saying here the church should practice self-regulation. There are no specific criteria given for weighing things up. Different people have suggested obvious lists. But the assumption seems to be that the gathered congregation will have sufficient maturity collectively in doctrine and discernment and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit that they'll know whether something is appropriate and right or not. In fact, this has been a long principle of Baptist churches like we are down through the ages when we meet together for our church meetings. We believe that the Holy Spirit can guide us together on that particular occasion. It's one reason why in our church we don't have proxy voting. In other words, you can't say, well, we're going to vote on something and I'll just send my vote in. We only vote with those present because God might change our minds. In fact, at our last, I think it was our last church meeting, the elders proposed a certain course of action And as we began to discuss it together, two or three hundred of us, there came a collective view that what we decided wasn't the right step to take and we we moved to a different position. Now, if you'd sent your vote in, you wouldn't have known that. But God moved among us in a very remarkable way, I think, and changed our views. And the elders said, yeah, that's right, we'll go for this. And we voted on it and collectively made a decision. One crucial factor is that if a person is standing up and speaking God's word, he should be willing to give way if a revelation comes to another person sitting in the congregation by allowing them to speak. Presumably the speaker stood up to speak. The person should be willing and able to give way to someone else. And again, the new revelation would be weighed by the rest of the group to see whether it was appropriate or right. What is clear again, interestingly, about the exercise of prophecy, like that of tongues, is that the person who speaks is under control. He's able to and willing to stop or start speaking at will. And Paul says this is the mark of being inspired by the Spirit. You see, Paul is writing to Greek society where people were taken over by spiritual powers and they began to maybe babble ecstatically under the influence maybe of a demonic power and they couldn't stop themselves. The power took over, as it were. Now Paul says, for Christians, that's not appropriate. That's not correct. Because where the Holy Spirit works, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. Verse 32. And he says, if a person says, look, I have to speak, I can't stop speaking because God's told me to speak and I can do nothing else, then you can be sure they're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. For, why? Verse 33. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And it's clear that Paul is addressing this to the church in Corinth where these two gifts had been much abused, prophecy and tongues, without any self-control, without any evaluation. Then Paul moves on to a third subject which seems to have been causing disorder in the church in Corinth. In verses 34 to 36 he talks about the participation of women. Now, these are very contentious verses. Uh, Whole forests have been felled to produce paper to write articles and learned tomes on these verses and I'm not going to answer them all in a few minutes. The first problem you come to when you read these verses, it seems very clear, doesn't it? Women are to remain silent in church. And some men breathe a sigh of relief and others who should know better should not do that. 
But if you've read 1 Corinthians, you've got a problem here. Because early on, if we just turn back into chapter 11, which is just over the page, 1152, in verse 5, Paul talks about women, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered is on as her head. Talked about that with our former pastor, Reverend Derek Prime, when he preached on this. But what he's saying there is that women pray and prophesy. Now he seems to be saying that women should keep silent. So the big question is, how do you reconcile these two things? Well, it seems absolutely clear to me that this is not here in chapter 14, a blanket condemnation of all women saying anything in church. I know there are people who disagree, but I just cannot see that Paul is going to contradict himself within a couple of chapters. Some people have tried to get out of this by saying, well, it's clear to me that Paul is not contradicting himself, but some conservative scribe who wrote this letter down and copied it later decided it wasn't very appropriate and it really shouldn't belong there at all. So let's just take it out. And in fact, if you take the verses out, it reads very sensibly without the verses there. The only problem is we don't have any Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that have the verses omitted. So you can't get off the hook with that, all right? Those who believe these verses are genuine to Paul, and I certainly would be among them, offer various solutions to try and reconcile what's being said. Uh, Some have pointed out, for example, that in Greek society, almost all women were illiterate. And that these women were interrupting proceedings by asking inappropriate questions which they'd be better to ask their husbands when they got back home. Others pictured a church and said that when Christians met in these days, as in the synagogue, the women were in a separate place, like the women were all in the balcony. You get this in synagogues, still in some places today, depending on what kind of synagogue it is, uh, and that the men sort of did the participation in the meeting, and these women were shouting out inappropriately from the balcony. Other people even say, well, they were chattering and disturbing proceedings, and Paul is saying, well, they need to keep quiet because they're, they're, they're disturbing the proceedings. I don't think that that gives the whole answer. They don't deal with the real issue, which is inquiring about something. Other people say it was the women who were speaking in tongues all the time and using this gift and they needed to be in submission, verse 34, to their own spirits and not allowed to speak. Perhaps the best answer, and none of these is without difficulty, is that I believe probably this relates back to the weighing of prophecies, the evaluation of what is said in the congregation, which Paul has just dealt with regarding the weighing of prophecies. Although, as we've seen, it was the responsibility of the whole congregation to weigh whether what was said was correct or not, it seems that these women were publicly arguing and disagreeing with the judgment of the men and with their husbands, because it talks about them being married women. Of course, most women in those days were married. Uh, Singleness was not a particular phenomenon in the ancient world. And disagreeing publicly with their husbands in the congregation. One can only imagine if that kind of thing happened today in our churches. And I think what Paul may be saying here is that they are are usurping the God-given headship of the husband, which is already spoken about in chapter 11. Uh, And also in 1 Timothy 2, which is another controversial passage, where he attributes the final arbitration, someone's got to take a final decision. Uh, And Paul says, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and therefore it is appropriate for men to do that. So the statement, they must be in submission, as the law says, because there's nothing in the law of Moses that said women should keep quiet. Maybe a more general reference to submission, going back to Genesis 3 and the story of the fall and so on. So he says they should ask their own husbands at home. 
the big issue is, whatever was happening was causing scandal in the community in which they lived and bringing shame and disgrace to Christ in whose name they meet. In much the same way as we saw in chapter 11 where Paul talks about women having their heads covered. It's not an absolute ruling. He's just saying that not having your head covered in those days was a sign of shame and dishonour to Christ himself. And in the same way, what he's saying here has something similar, causing disgrace. Again, Leon Morris comments, and I think perhaps is a helpful quotation. For women to take on themselves the role of instructors would have been to discredit Christianity in the eyes of most people. Indeed, among the Greeks, women were discouraged from saying anything. Some people accuse Paul of being a male chauvinist. Nothing could be further from the truth. What Paul wrote in those days was absolutely radical and controversial about women. To say that in Christ there is neither male nor female, that we're all one in Christ, we're on equal status, was absolutely radical and revolutionary. But to allow them in these circumstances to assume final authority in teaching, he says, breaks with the practice of all the congregation of the saints, verse 34. Whatever the exact issue. And one of the questions that most theologians who make it to heaven will want to ask Paul is, what did you mean when you wrote 1 Corinthians 14? I'd like to know what you meant about women. But whatever the, uh, the, the reality and the truth, it was causing disgrace in the churches in Greek society. And yet this church thought they could break with what everyone else was doing. And so Paul says, are you the fountainhead of knowledge in Corinth? Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it's reached? Instead, he says, any true prophet or spiritually gifted person would recognize Paul's authority in this matter. For he says, what I write is the Lord's command. And he says, anyone who fails to acknowledge this will be unacknowledged by all the other churches and Christians and by God himself. And so he concludes not only this section, but the whole of what we've looked at in chapters 12 to 14 on the issue of tongues with a balanced simmering. Paul's conclusion, verse 39, be eager to prophesy... Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, that's the background, that's the principle. Okay, let's try and think together a little bit how this now applies to where we're at in the 21st century. Because it raises some very important issues about what Christians do when they come together. The New International Version, as you see there, for those who are new to the Bible, the, these headings are added by the translators, they're not in the original, have headed this orderly worship. I, I kind of followed that, but I recognise the argument that's been made very forcibly recently that the word worship should really not just be restricted to what Christians do when they come together. All of our lives are worship. They're not limited to some particular occasion. Uh, be that as it may, and we'll come back to it in a moment. For the sake of convention and shorthand, I want to continue to use the, worship, the word worship here just to describe what Paul calls when Christians come together. All right? And I want to raise four key issues among many. Um, I don't claim to give all the answers, but I hope it will provoke you to think more clearly about what we do as a church, particularly those in leadership, but all of us as a congregation and the churches represented here. Okay, four particular issues we need to look at together. First of all, the pattern of worship. How, how should, what's the pattern when Christians come together? Are Paul's instructions here, let me use two technical words, but I'll explain what they mean. 
Are they descriptive? Is Paul here just describing what was happening in the church in Corinth in the first century? Or are they prescriptive? Is he giving here a pattern for how every Christian congregation should behave when they come together? So, for example, verse 26, when he says, What shall we say then, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. So, if Christians meet together and there are no hymns, is this unbiblical? Uh, the word used for hymns there is the word psalmos, from which we get psalms. It's a song to musical instruments, often from the Old Testament, even composed, many people believe, by individuals for use in the congregation, so that when they came together, Philip introduced a new song, there might be some in the congregation who said, I've just written this new song about Jesus. This happened quite frequently when I, when I lived in India, the community I worked amongst there. People wrote all their own hymns and they'd come together and they would teach people, because they couldn't read, they would sing a song and everybody would repeat after, after them. Something like that. Is that essential? That you've got to have hymns when you come together? Or psalms? With musical instruments? Without musical instruments? Or should we be think, thinking of certain churches? Are we failing... New Testament, God-given instructions, because in this particular church, we don't have tongues and people interpreting tongues. What about all the other gifts mentioned in chapter 12? Are we falling short of God's plan for us as a church if we don't have the full set? However many there were. And what about the structure of our services? Should they be planned as they are? Or should one person preach only? Or should we have a time when two or three prophets, and some of you sitting there saying, I'd like to say something at this point. Probably some of you are at this point saying, I'd like to say something at this point. Maybe some of the women are saying something they'd like to say at this point. You see, if 1 Corinthians is prescriptive, if it's a pattern for all churches, then let's face it, we're all way out of order here. And most churches are out of order at this particular point. We've lost the plot. We're a long way removed from what is described here. Now, while this is not inconceivable, and if it is true, then we need to rectify it, we have taken the approach, which I think is the right approach, that what is written here is not prescriptive, but descriptive of a particular church in this particular situation. I don't think that the church in Ephesus and the way that they met together was probably well, certainly identically the same as that in Corinth. Corinth was located in this particular place. We've seen how some of the spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues, were practiced in the Greek mystery religions, had been Christianized and brought into their own context. So I don't think it's a description of any particular church. It's a description of a particular church, a particular place and time, a church that was exhibiting certain gifts of the Spirit, which are not a comprehensive list of every gift of the Spirit. In fact, I don't believe, if you, you can listen to the series previously, that even the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians are an exclusive list for all time. I believe that the Spirit gives his gifts and many gifts and different kinds of gifts at different times. And what Paul is doing here is writing to this specific situation to correct what is wrong, particularly the abuse of the gift of tongues. Obviously, what he writes has a specific application to those churches in which such gifts are exercised. However, this doesn't mean that this is irrelevant to churches where these gifts are not. Rather, we need to look beyond the gifts and the pattern of worship to a second issue which is, arises here. 
And the second issue is the purpose of worship. Now, why do Christians meet together? I mean, why, why are we meeting together like this on 11 in the morning and 6.30 in the evening, as is written in Leviticus? Well, no, it isn't. All right? The early Christians met before dawn because they had to go to work. It wasn't a day of rest, Sunday. Why do we meet together? I would guarantee if, all, if I went around the congregation, those who've been around sometimes said, why do Christians meet together? Almost all of us would say, for worship. Indeed, we often call our services morning worship and evening worship. And within these services, we've often got into the habit of setting aside a time, in some churches a very long time, for what we call a time of worship. When we sing and pray together. In other words, is what we do primarily about our vertical relationship with God. So when we sing sometimes, when we pray, we close our eyes. When we sing, if we know the words, we often close our eyes. Why? We think it helps us to focus better on God and we're not distracted by looking at other people and how they're singing and what they're doing. In order that we might be, as the hymn puts it, lost in wonder, love and praise. Though the hymn writer does say that this will only be when we finally cast our crowns before Christ. Now, there is nothing wrong with that. That is the ultimate focus of what we do. But it's very interesting if you actually look closely at what the Bible says about the purpose of Christians coming together. And it seems to me that the primary focus when Christians met together was not the vertical dimension addressing God, but the horizontal dimension. So is what we do primarily horizontal, edifying one another. In fact, Paul's point about this, think what he said about speaking in tongues. He says, if there's no interpreter, then keep quiet and you can praise God quietly yourself. You don't need anybody else there. Instead, Paul says, spiritual gifts such as a hymn, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation, verse 26, all of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. And the word strengthening is the one that Paul has used throughout this chapter. The word used of building a house. Uh, that is it were, God is building his new community and strengthening us. And the way that he does this is that we strengthen one another by using the gifts that God has given us to make his church strong, to edify the body. And the best way we do that is to meet with other Christians. You want to become a strong Christian? Well, you need to meet with other Christians. Because God has so designed his body that we need one another. And so it seems to me that what Paul is saying here is, and the New Testament, if you look at it more closely, and there's a lot of research recently been done about this, a rethinking of this, is that when Christians meet together, it is primarily for mutual edification. Even singing in music, and the New Testament says remarkably little about singing in music. Certainly, it's far less of a focus than is in the modern church today, has this horizontal dimension. Here are the two key passages in the epistles about, about singing. Notice what it says, Ephesians 5, 18 to 20. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another. Notice people argue about sing to one another, but the point is, is communication. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Obviously, the vertical dimension as well. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The parallel passage in Colossians 3 makes the same point. Let the word of Christ 
dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Of course you're singing them to God. You're praising God. But we need to meet together to edify one another, to build one another up, to strengthen one another in the faith, to become the kind of building, the spiritual temple that God is looking for. That's why Paul gives priority to prophecy. In verse 3, it's for our mutual strengthening, encouragement and comfort. And whatever gifts, and we can get hung up on the gifts themselves, the important thing is not the gifts, but why does God give them? He gives them for the edification, the building up of his people, for the building up of his church, for strengthening the body. Now this leads to a third issue, and I'm touching on these very briefly, and you should have some interesting discussions with your friends afterwards, I hope, but uh, let's look at the third issue, which is the participants in worship. We saw in chapter 12 that the local church is like a body with many parts, each different but contributing to the health, the growth, the reflection of what a body is really like. Though some may be more visible, each is needed. So the idea of a one-man ministry is totally at odds with what is described here. Whatever form or part in our meetings take, they should allow for each part of the body to play his or her God-given, spirit-enabled role. Is it one-man ministry? No, every member ministry. Now, the, the practical question is, how is this possible, not least in a church of this size? I mean, if I open it up now and said, right, anybody got a word, a prophecy, anybody got a tongue, anyone want to say something, a revelation, somebody got a hymn, whatever it might be. The first thing we need to recognise is that what we do together twice on a Sunday is not the sum total of what we do as Christians together. Indeed, some people believe that the first half of 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says in verse 23, when the whole church comes together, is maybe the large meeting of the whole church. And verses 26 to 40 describes what happens when smaller groups of Christians come together. We thought about this this morning in the book of Acts. The early church met in the temple courts and in their homes. One of our former pastors, Alan Redpath, wrote a book on 1 Corinthians, The Royal Route to Heaven. This is what he comments on this, these verses. I do not think that Paul is describing here what I would call a normal evangelistic service in the church, a preaching service, but he's dealing with a fellowship meeting. This is what early Christians would call a sharing meeting in which they shared something of what the Lord had been saying to them, a practice which has, I'm afraid, largely died out these days. Now, I checked and this was written, I think, when Alan was in uh, Moody in uh, the early 60s. And things have changed. Many churches now, like ours, have small groups where we have the opportunity to mutually build up one another, edify one another. But I think again we need to do some hard thinking about what is the purpose of these groups? What are they for? Surely they are for the mutual encouragement, strengthening comfort, the building up of God's people. And at the same time we saw that they are open to other people to come in to observe what we like and what we do. Above all, we must work hard at looking at ways in which we can use the gifts that God has given us to mutually encourage one another, build one another up in the faith. Now, that's the third issue, the participants in worship. Now, there is one supreme reason for this, which is the final issue, and we're nearly there now, uh, addressed in these verses, which is what I call the picture of worship. 
Abby Gannett, if you can remember that long ago, we've nearly finished, the fact that apparent disorder brings discredit to democracy and politicians in the House of Commons. But Paul has a much greater concern here. His biggest concern is when Christians like us or any place, when they meet together, they're saying something about the God that they worship and what he is like. In other words, our meetings together are a picture of what God is like. Which is conveyed to people who might walk in off the street or might be interested in the Christian faith. What kind of God do you worship? Well, you get an impression of it by the way that we conduct our services when we meet together, how we worship. And in Corinth, what was happening is that their worship was disorderly. Everyone speaking at the same time, uncontrolled ecstatic utterances. The Christians in Corinth were communicating a picture of God who is a God of disorder. So much so that outsiders thought they were mad. What he is saying is, your meeting should reveal a true picture, a different picture of what God is like. Interestingly, Paul does not say, for God is a God of order, although he is a God of order, but he uses a better word. He says, for God is a, not a God of disorder, verse 33, but he's a God of peace. The word peace is a wonderful word in Greek and in Hebrew. It's the Greek word shalom, and the Hebrew word shalom, the Greek word irinate, means wholeness, completeness, harmony, balance all that is good. And Paul says, when you meet together, you need to communicate the kind of God that you worship so that people are attracted to him, people who are not at peace, people who are not whole. You need to communicate the kind of God he is, for God is not a God of disorder. He's not a God who takes over people, whether they like it or not, in uncontrolled ways. That's demonic, that's occult. But the Spirit of God brings harmony and peace and all that is good to people whose lives are dysfunctional. So how we worship is far more important than all these other questions because it communicates something about the God that we worship. What picture of God do we communicate to those outside? It would be a very interesting test, wouldn't it? I mean, maybe you're here for the first time. It would be interesting to find out from having sat through this service, what kind of God do you think they worship in Charlotte Chapel? What would your impression of him be from what we do and how we do it? And if you go to a small group, Christians meeting together in homes as we do, and we encourage everyone in the church to join a small group, if you're not in one, you should join one. Because you're never going to use your gifts in this big environment. It's totally impractical. You want to be a functioning Christian, you need to be in some kind of small group somewhere with other Christians, as well as in the whole congregation coming together. But if someone came into that meeting, what would they say? Well, what kind of God is this that you worship? We communicate something by the God that we worship, by the way that we worship about God. Now, I suspect that most of our churches today, certainly the tradition to which we belong, does not communicate disorderly worship. I don't think so. Even when Philip dropped the thing down below, that was just a, a minor bleep when he dropped his bulletin. But that doesn't mean we don't communicate anything. And it does not mean, just because the service is orderly, that we're communicating what God is really like. Gordon Fee comments, 
The theological point is crucial. The character of one's deity is reflected in the character of one's worship. And then he adds a footnote. That's what he says. Which probably says something about somber Christian worship as well. Since joy is the order of the early church, indicating that God is a God of joy, who delights in the worship of his people as they delight in him. Maybe that's a challenge for us as a church and maybe the churches to which we belong. Let's pray together, shall we?